0: So today's theme is call and response, and the idea of falling in love with God. So I'm going to just step back a week in our readings and then bring us up to date uh, using that theme from Exodus and Mark. And I hope to draw out the amazing plan and purpose of God and show it in relief, and then for us to see perhaps what our response is to that. And I want us to think, as I'm speaking, I want us to keep at the back of our minds the idea of a Chinese doll or a telescope, something which has a repeating pattern um, and gets brighter and brighter, as it were, and, and brings forward the plan and purpose of God in our mind. So call and response is a musical term. You have two phrases of music. Uh, well, the second phrase is a direct... Well, I shouldn't be speaking because I know we have experts in the room. Uh, it's an answer to the first phrase. And it appears in all, all music, nearly. Um, and it's also a form of communication. You may hear a, a pastor in an evangelical church calling for an amen or calling for verification of what he's saying. It's an, it's an instilled form of communication that all humans seem to, to share in every art form. And it's also absolutely the way the Bible works, as you might expect, because God made us. This call and response then. We come to Exodus. This week we've been reading about the plagues of Egypt and the miraculous escape of all of those millions. God's plan and his amazing foreknowledge, his care and compassion and the love he showed to Israel. We see he demands glory as his right and he uses people to increase awareness of himself. He picked Abraham and gave him a son at 100 and then asked him to sacrifice his son and then showed him in the most amazing way possible that I am not like all the other gods that demand human sacrifice All those nations sizzling their children in the arms of bronze gods heated up until they glowed red in the dark. Yahweh, our living God, demands a living sacrifice. Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. For no one remembers you in the realm of death. In the grave, who gives you thanks? I want godly children from you. He is unlike any other God on the face of the earth. Abraham would never forget the beauty of that message, and nor should we. He doesn't desire our suffering. He is simply saying, when I call, I want you to respond, because it's not about you. I have a plan that you are part of. So then Isaac grows and in time has a favourite son, Joseph, who is betrayed by his brothers, as we remember the story, sold into Egypt, being in form like a servant, then became a powerful head of the house, then again counted with the transgressors, imprisoned, left to rot, and miraculously pulled out to supreme power. The whole point was God was testing Joseph, repeatedly heating and cooling him like a blacksmith fire to make him fit for God's plan until he was able to use the power and position that God was to give him to bring forward the plan of God. And we remember, don't we, in Paul and Barnabas in Syria, in each city they encouraged the Christians to be strong and true to the faith. They told them, we must suffer many hard things to get into the holy nation of God. And again in Timothy we're told, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Joseph was the most powerful man in the whole of Egypt when his brothers grovelled at his feet. He was so understanding of God's plan by that point. He had so much compassion for them. He knew they'd been sent by God to save them. To, he was sent by God to save them, to keep God's plan on track. And they deserved to meet some serious justice. But instead, Joseph cried so loudly that all the Egyptians heard it and those in Pharaoh's house heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were afraid in front of him. It's hard to imagine these days because today our leaders are so pitiful in a way, aren't they? They're little more than Oxbridge officials who lurched from one disaster to the next. But in those days, leaders of that time held the power of life and death over you on a whim. And we remember what happened to Haman when he dared to cross King Xerxes. Xerxes was angry and asked Haman, Will you attempt to harm the queen in front of me? And as he spoke those words, they covered his face. Just the implication of of going against the king was enough for everybody to know what was going to happen next. And this was how the brothers were feeling. This is our first part of our telescope as we focus in on God's plan. Joseph, as a type of Christ, with his Jewish brothers, their jealousy forgiven. Joseph was in harmony with God's mind and He was the instrument in God's positive plan. Even though they had no idea who he was because of their fear, he was still merciful. Even after they knew and after his mercy, they were still so scared they begged him not to harm them. And he just joked in good humor, don't argue on the way home. We remember a prophecy in Zechariah. I will pour out on the kingship of David and the population of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will lament for him as one laments for an only son. And there will be a bitter cry for him, like the bitter cry for a firstborn. I will refine them like silver is refined, and I will test them like gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer. I will say, these are my people, and they will say, Yahweh is our mighty ones. Yes, Jesus will accept those who put those holes in his hands and feet because they meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. And Jesus, full of power as he hung on the cross, allowed it. So let's step forward a generation now, still in Exodus, to that little band of forgiven brothers tolerated by the Egyptians for Joseph's sake. But secretly despised for being shepherds. Well, Joseph had died and his descendants had grown numerous. A huge manpower resource to be exploited as adult slaves. You can imagine a few luxuriously dressed, rather fat men in royal garb reclining together while being attended to by servants. Their sneers and callous joking, their pompous nurturing of the idea of slavery as a solution to building a better country, far from the earshot of any suffering. But Moses, a prince in Egypt, after being brought up and schooled in the knowledge of the Egyptians, far from lying in well-earned luxury, was walking the streets, observing his people's hard labor. When he saw an Egyptian attacking a Hebrew man, Now, it's because of the Second World War that we know how to get the most out of a population of slaves. The studies the Germans undertook show that you get more work done if you work people to death than you do if you show them any compassion. You just replace the weak ones before they die. It's more efficient that way. And this was the backdrop to what happened when Moses saw this atrocity. He was used to seeing dead Hebrews, I suspect, and here was an Egyptian beating an already weak and despised Hebrew more than half to death. No pity. This was more than just a few cracks of the whip. He was watching a man die and it became his problem. So a man enraged with the authority of a prince, but with a stammer. How would he get his words out given that situation? Would he be ridiculed by that guard? Moses had had experience, no doubt, of as all children do, of being teased and bullied. He was an outsider after all, the son of a sheepherder, someone whose speech betrayed his lower estate. So he was filled with an incredible anger and looking around carefully, he then brought down on that Egyptian all those years of victimisation and it killed him. And now we see both the Egyptian and Moses in a different light. On the surface, Moses was well-fed, a strong and powerful man. But he was a victim, and he smashed that man. Maybe the Egyptian was a family man. No doubt he was being punished routinely for the failures of his slaves. Just a servant in a system. He was perhaps an honourable man, we just don't know. I have the sense that Moses was perhaps in a somebody who had been abused who became, in this case, an abuser. And they both ended up, both the Egyptian and Moses, both ended up being violent because of their their violent upbringing, perhaps their victimization for one reason or another. And we know that people become abusers little by little in small steps as they work their way through harsh machinery of state or harsh parenthood. Moses had inherited everything that that Egyptian guard could never have hoped to get by hard work, and he left it behind in that moment. He became a murderer and a fugitive, completely without any power, or he was truly voiceless, and he fled to a foreign land with the clothes he was wearing. So this Moses, this physical man of action, who protects the underdog, now fights off shepherds that regularly beat the daughters of the priest of Midian. They'd come home early and they told their father that an Egyptian man had rescued them and watered the flocks. They didn't need to explain anything. It was an everyday occurrence for them. Moses was not, perhaps as we think of him, an old man in a brown cloak. He was a physically strong, intelligent, proactive, sensitive man, ready to get stuck in. And so he was always battling for the underdog. He was the perfect man to carry on God's purpose, given his background. How come God could choose a murderer to further his purpose? And we're given the answer in Mark 2 by Jesus himself. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, These, Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." God calls us because he is kind, because he is merciful. He uses us, though we are nothing. I will be kind to anyone I want, and I will be merciful to anyone I want, says Yahweh. So God meets and chooses Moses at the burning bush. And Moses has to go and speak to Pharaoh and all the wise people. I mean, the cleverest people they have the most intimidating people. And among all those tens of gods, Moses needs to know how to represent his God. Who shall I say sent me? And he says, say, Aye, Asher, Aye has sent you. And this is a a special phrase which people argue about today, but it means, it signifies an action that hasn't yet been completed and there's a few different ways of translating it. I am that I am, or I am who I shall be. But let's stick with the one we know best. I shall be who I shall be. So Moses now has an answer. And he goes to Pharaoh and his wise men in the majesty of the palace. And he has an audience with Pharaoh. And he's got to stand there and say to the one that everyone believes to be the creator God on earth. A mighty ruler and a shepherd of men, not of sheep like those despised Hebrews, that I shall be who I shall be has sent me. Or to put it another way, my purpose will prevail and you can't stop me. So no wonder Pharaoh was slightly put out of joint. Pharaoh's heart was bound to be hardened. God was facing him, facing him down, using Hebrews as messengers, one of which couldn't even speak under pressure, And all while confidently predicting the outcome, it's little wonder that Pharaoh wasted no time in saying, I have no idea who that is. He doesn't sound like the kind of God that I believe in. Each of the 10 plagues were designed to strip out all of the gods of of, of Egypt, all of those idols. And so from Set to Osiris and Nut and Ra and Isis and all all of these gods were dismissed. And you can imagine... The priests of those gods being summoned in fear of their lives to the palace to explain themselves. It's not recorded, but one can imagine the fate of some of them. And they were probably desperate to mimic some of the the plagues, just so that they could prove that they could do that too. You know. But it's the last plague I want to mention most, because it's the only one which required the whole of Israel to demonstrate an act of understanding and of faith. The rest of the plagues, they were spared from simply because they were Israel. And this brings Jesus to the front of our minds, doesn't it? Like that heartbeat, like that telescopic plan of God. It was by the blood of a lamb that their their firstborn were saved. They were bought with a price, and the lamb was to be accepted instead. But from that day onwards, God owned those firstborn children as their lives had been spared by him. Those firstborn were now free to leave the life of intended slavery, following their parents' footsteps to be owned and oppressed and beaten, working only to survive, working for somebody else. Now they were free to worship the Lord. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of those people. That is why this sacrifice is made to the Lord of the first male offspring of every womb. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. By Jesus' sacrifice, we've been saved from our life of gradual death by faith through our acts of belief in Jesus. And it's because of this belief that we act. And we remember the Israelites being commanded to camp out on the edge of the Red Sea as the armies of Pharaoh approached. And so we see them camping together and the cloud and the fire moved to be between the two camps And while Israel experiences light as they get baptised through those waters and move towards the promised land, the the Egyptians are in total darkness and we're reminded immediately of a couple of verses in Corinthians. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and who makes known through us the fragrance that consists of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to the latter an odour from death to death, but to the former a fragrance from life to life. (coughs) And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like so many others, hucksters who peddle the word of God for profit. We are speaking in Christ, before God, as persons of sincerity sent from God." Yes, to those who are completely satisfied with wealth and preach many gods to their own prophets, the truth about God and the simplicity of the message, that faith in Jesus is all you need, is just darkness and the smell of death. I mean, you only have to go to Uganda to meet Pentecostal preachers who've never read the Bible, who are preaching the gospel of prosperity, that their flock can be as rich as they are if only they donate money. And they come to us to get a Bible, but when they realise that there's no money in it, they, they can't accept the truth, although it's so reasonable, because they, they'll lose their livelihood. So those who are busy getting saved and being baptised, it's the light of a miraculous rescue that we didn't provide, we couldn't achieve by ourselves, we are in awe of, We walk that narrow path, looking to our right and our left, in wonder. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were all drinking from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ Is there any clearer message to us of God's love? It continues unstoppable through history. He has spoken to us while we were yet sinners. He literally promised us the earth. He asks us to be living sacrifices, not dead ones. And then he provides the sacrifice. Then he reveals his name and purpose to us. He asks us to witness to those around us, asking us just to have faith in his Son, to be baptised while fleeing from sin, to follow Jesus on the way to the promised land where we will be united with those Jewish brothers we read about. So we are today called by I shall be who I shall be to live the lives of those recorded so long ago. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So who is this Yahweh we are are being called by to be living sacrifices for? We just step a few chapters forward in Exodus to when Moses was shown his name and this is what he experienced. Then Yahweh passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, a merciful, mighty one, Patience, always faithful and ready to forgive. He continues to show his love to thousands of generations, forgiving wrongdoing, disobedience and sin. He never lets the guilty go unpunished, punishing children and grandchildren for their parents' sins to the third and fourth generation. And I would add, we know from the Bible that it's those people who continue in the sin of their parents. Those people, as Jesus mentioned, who are blind, followers of the blind, that don't think for themselves, that don't grope around for God, that simply believe what they're told. They follow in the errors of their parents, and so God does not forgive them either. But just think about that first part of Yahweh's name. It's so utterly beautiful. It's beyond our comprehension. Yahweh, who lives forever, he has all power, all knowledge of everything, unbound and infinite, The creator of the universe has this to say. Yahweh, Yahweh, a compassionate and merciful mighty one, patient, always faithful and ready to forgive. He continues to show his love to thousands of generations, forgiving wrongdoing, disobedience and sin. How far above us is this one? We can surely place our trust in one like that. All the days of our lives, the darkest days and the happiest days. I have the power to do anything, and I choose to use it to be compassionate, faithful, patient, and ready to forgive. I forgive a people who belittle me. I forgive those who ignore me. I forgive those who disrespect me, who forget me, who don't thank me, who are just fair-weather friends. In that list, I describe myself in parts of my life. He is to be praised, and he is worthy of respect. And his demand to be glorified is sensible. Who is like him? We only have to just look around in our mind's eye at the beauty and wonder of creation, the plants and all their varieties, so many adaptations of animals, spiders that can map out of the forest and hunt in 3D. Whales that can communicate across thousands of miles. Birds that use quantum physics to detect the magnetic field of the earth. Turtles that can get to a place they've never even seen before. I mean, it's just awesome. And it's all as if God has just breathed on a pane of glass. He's just inspired it. And this is what he's left behind for us to, to have full confidence in what he's stating to be the truth that he is a compassionate and merciful, mighty one. And then, of course, he's breathed out the word of God, which is life to those who can be bothered to read it. So I, I went to see the storm last night. We had a fantastic storm where I live, and I, I went down to watch the waves. And they were 60 feet high. And... I like to go down there because it's a representation of God's power, but it's also a representation of the nations as they are today. And so what I saw there was nations warring, but bound. We're expected to have the faith that the disciples were expected to have in the current weather, knowing that Jesus is with us right now in this room. And the picture I had when I was watching the storm, although it was nearly midnight, was of the sun, of the radiance of God's light shining on the ocean. And that picture of some of the water being cooled towards the heavens, evaporated off the surface. And as we know, when that happens, that's pure water. <coughs> and that forms a cloud, doesn't it? A cloud of witnesses. And those clouds will in their time reflect the light of God and that's when the rainbow of the gospel appears, of being led from sin through tried faith and then through new life with the law of Christ in the kingdom as priests. And, we, and that rainbow shines on those that, we live, that are on the earth that have yet to take the call of God. But then the rain falls from those clouds across the entire surface of the earth. That rain's not bound. That falls on the land and the sea. And we immediately, or I immediately thought of Habakkuk. For the recognition of the Yahweh sovereign majesty will fill the earth just as the waters cover the sea. And it it brought a lovely vision of this, of our sharing in the kingdom, this water of life that we've been drinking from across the whole surface of the earth, all the nations that remain. So the call is this, love God with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your life and heart, and love your neighbour as yourself. It's so simple, such a complicated world, and yet those laws cover it all. If you had to distill the meaning and purpose of life, who would have come up with that? God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And When God manifested himself in Jesus, as we read earlier, a man who looked around in anger at the hardness of people's hearts, he just asked such a simple question, who will act for good on this day? And not nobody could admit to, <coughs> to that being the right <coughs> answer. Everybody fell in love with that man. And so this is, our response should be to imagine, although we can't see Jesus, to imagine those qualities he represented and fall in love with them. And not just fall in love with Jesus, but with God, the origin of those qualities, and with each other as we try to manifest those qualities. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. When I was younger, I used to think that falling in love was a, a trick to help us procreate. Very naive. If you've ever fallen in love, you know that all the barriers of separation come down. You feel at one with each other in every way that you can imagine. Being at one in purpose and mind, you feel you are them. There's no ego, there's no you and me. There's no competition, there's no I want. Being in love slows down time. Time has no meaning. Remember Jacob, working for seven years for Rachel, and it was just a moment. And it struck me how that when I studied physics... I learned that there was an equation that governed the relationship between time and the speed of light. So that if you were to go close to the speed of light, time actually changes. And if you were able to go at the speed of light, you would be everywhere in the universe at the same instant. And there would be no concept of time at all. And that's when I remembered God is light. He's everywhere all at once, not bound by time at all but he's also love. And equating those two things, we can understand why being in love stops time. At the moment, we are a pale reflection of God. We're made in his image. And time can never stop. But it brings our minds forward to the kingdom when we will be made immortal. And at that time, perhaps perhaps time will stop and we will no longer be bound by it as well. We will be at peace in a timeless state, at one with every one of us. We're only capable of this kind of spiritual insight so that we can look back to God and consciously decide to thank him for what he's offering us. God has given us falling in love with each other to show us how we must feel towards him and how we will feel towards him in the kingdom. We will be in a state of total unity. We will all still have our different personalities, but there will be no shadows. There will be no distinctions. Every moment will be infinite. We will be fully at peace with a single will and purpose we'll be able to interact with each other with acceptance and our free will ideas will combine perfectly to glorify God. So our question is, where are we today? We must have love in our lives. And if faith can move mountains and hope can pull us through the deepest darkness and grief and sadnesses, what can love do? Love is a way to bring to unity what is separate. It's a way of saving because if we are in love with God and each other, we can attract and surely will attract by that those around us who will draw close to us. God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. So let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. God raises up the next generation as one generation falters. His purpose is worked out in the next from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Jesus. Never let us be scared to pass on that which we have been entrusted with, but instead let us hand it over to the next generation, our responsibilities, encouraging them and spurring them on with love, giving them freely that which God gave us as a work. I've got a little story here. A traveller fell into a deep pit and couldn't get out. Several people came along and saw him struggling in the pit. And the sensitive person said, I feel for you down there. The reflective person said, it's logical that someone would fall into that pit. The interior designer suggested how to decorate the pit. And the judgmental person said, only bad people fall into pits. The curious person said, Tell me how you fell in there. The legalist said, I believe you deserved that. The self-pitying person said, well, you should have seen my pit. The optimist said, cheer up. The pessimist said, be prepared, things might get worse. But Jesus, seeing that man, took him by the hand and lifted him out. And we remember the Good Samaritan also didn't stop to concern himself with how the Jews don't associate with Samaritans. He just got on with it. He saw a need and he met it. And this humble focus on someone else's need is love defined, isn't it? It really doesn't matter what we think about it. We see a need and we meet it. Do not withhold good from those who need it when you have the power and ability to help. So let us be in love wholeheartedly trusting and confident in the willingness of Yahweh to forgive us in the power of Jesus' sacrifice. And let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not yet made perfect in love. So let us learn from that man in Mark 1 who had leprosy. And there are various translations of that word, moved with compassion, But the earliest manuscript has Jesus' indignance with the man for his question. I'll read that version out. A man who had a skin disease came to Jesus. On his knees he begged him, If you are willing to make me clean, you can do it. It's rather a passive question, isn't it? And Jesus became angry and he reached out his hand and touched the man. This man who had suffered years of ostracization fear and persecution, who had been driven away from every public place, had no social interaction, somebody who was despised. The son of God reached out and touched him. I am willing to do it, he said, be clean. Right away the disease left the man and he was clean. And Jesus sent him away at once and he gave the man a strong warning. Don't tell this to anyone, Go and show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded. It will be a witness to the priest and to the people that you are clean. But the man went out and started talking right away and he spread the news to everyone. So Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He stayed outside in lonely places and people came to him from everywhere. We imagine that man finally being able to interact with people and completely forgetting the words of Jesus and just... Having these wonderful moments entirely selfishly. He didn't believe that Jesus would. He asked this passive question if you are willing, I know you can. And I am willing. You know, Jesus represented that willing God that is always there ready to forgive. This is wrong, isn't it? This attitude of if. We must be more confident than that. He is willing and he is able to forgive us and to give us the kingdom. We know that Jesus touched that man because of that man's emotional issues. He'd been ostracised for years. It wasn't just the leprosy that that man was suffering from. And yet he didn't appreciate what Jesus had done. He immediately disobeyed him. Yahweh is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. He numbers each of our hairs. And I don't think it matters that some of us have more than others. So let us remember now Christ as he himself asked us to, with a simple service, with awe and humility, with love in our hearts for such an amazing example of how we should live, how we should bear with each other meet each other's needs, put each other before ourselves, how we should cherish and respect and honour our differences non-judgmentally while still being encouraging, advising, correcting with gentleness and respect, being strong in our authentic witness to those around us. Because if we've been given the ability to love for any reason at all, it's to be unified and to use that unity to save others, by reflecting God's light in the eyes of those who see us.